Welcome to the Team Health Podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series exploring the critical topic of opioid use disorders with specific attention to buprenorphine. As always, we have a guest expert and today a guest host, Dr. Randall Dabbs. Randall is one of Team Health's founders and is currently Team Health's President of Practice Development, through which he provides substantial leadership to multiple programs that support and improve the practice and well-being of Team Health's clinicians. Germane to this discussion, Dr. Dabbs leads our Opioid Use Disorder Group. Thank you, Randall. I know you'll introduce our MAT program expert, Dr. Brant Williamson. Randall, will you set the stage for us? As chairman of the Substance Use Work Group of Team Health, one of our goals is to educate our clinicians about medication-assisted treatment, specifically buprenorphine, for patients who are discharged from the ED. Uh, Brant is an ER doctor in Martinsburg, West Virginia, in the belly of the opioid epidemic. He's been practicing for 25 years, but he's developed a special interest in finding more effective ways treating patients with an opioid use disorder. Welcome, Brant, and thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Randall. I um, I have uh, been involved with this now for three three years, and uh, it's changed quite a bit. And it's nice to come back around and uh, go over some of the things that have developed in that time frame. You know, Brant, treatment options for this disease have certainly changed over our lifetime as as emergency physicians. And if you think about the, uh, what limited treatment options we had in the past for patients who came in and overdosed, what do you think the big difference is and what have you seen progress that has been made in terms of our being able to treat these patients? Technology and the medications that we're talking about have been around for a good while. Um, it's, it's a perception issue that's been so problematic with, with whether this truly was treatment or whether it was appropriate treatment for the folks that are dealing with the problem. Um, buprenorphine has been around at least uh, 20 years or so, and it's been available to people, uh, to prescribers to use within that time frame. It's just that it's been this shunned um, form of treatment. It's not been something that's been accepted as a legitimate form of treatment by the folks like ourselves who have been um, uh, witness to people dealing with this problem. Uh, Vivitrol is also something that's been a it's been around for a bit less less time than what the buprenorphine has been as far as the injectable form of it. Um, but again, it's it's not something that we would go out of our way normally to try and um, even help with somebody dealing with this problem. Um, and it's because of stigma. It's because of our own stigma and our own judgment that we have laid upon certain um, individuals dealing with these. Um, problematic addiction issues, uh, and, and as a result of it, we just haven't seen how we fit into the picture of trying to make things work out better for them. So it's really more of an attitude on our part that's changed in the, the last 20 years or so. You know, it seems to be easier for us as emergency physicians to treat a patient with an overdose, and we get them back, and we think that we've done something, you know, uh, heroic. <clears throat> But the big challenge that I've always felt, Brent, 
once they're back and, and once they're sitting in the room where you think a patient may have a problem or you know they've overdosed and, and you've given some naloxone and they're back and they're alert, it's always been a difficulty in knowing how to approach the patient or the family to start a conversation and to talk about this issue. How, what have you found that's worked for you? Yeah, that, that's always a challenge. And I tell you, I think the way to, to, to look at this is because when we do come in and give somebody Narcan and bring them out of this near-death experience, they're not the, the, the nicest people to be around. Uh, they've been thrown into this immediate, intense uh, withdrawal, uh, precipitated withdrawal, and um, they're not going to be um, necessarily all that thankful to you. They're going to be angry. They're going to want out. Uh, I think we need to be better at understanding that that is such a difficult problem, such a difficult state for them to be in, because precipitated withdrawal is miserable. And then we need to kind of step back and say, okay, I get it. I know you feel uncomfortable, and I know that you're, you're, you're just wanting to leave, but before you do that, let me, let me sit down and talk with you a little bit because I think I can offer you something you maybe haven't been offered before. And if we as a provider can kind of take that approach instead of just tossing them out as, okay, well, I tried that, and I, I did, might have saved them, and hopefully they'll do okay. I mean, there are some things that we can do that can make them understand that this is not just their average Joe encounter where they've already been through this maybe time and time again and had just bad outcomes every time. Um, and then on top of that, you've got to understand, we've got to understand that there's a lot of embarrassment that comes along with this. You know, they, they are harder on themselves than, than we are on them. And when you factor that into the whole picture, and then on top of that, if there's a family in, in the room, they also have to deal with the judgment that a family member might be putting on them. So all of this put together, you've got to throw in some more sympathy toward their situation because they don't have a lot of outlets that they can go to in order to escape this. There's not really many at all, and you are actually one of the most profound uh, options that they have for a way out. Um, and to have us close that door on that way out by stepping aside and just saying, I don't want to be involved, well, that's really devastating. You know, I keep hearing this phrase, meet the patient where they are. What, is that, what does that mean in managing these patients in the ED? So probably the best way to explain that statement is to bring up harm reduction and what harm reduction is all about. In, in a sense, I look at what I'm doing as a very effective form of harm reduction. Well, what does that, what does that mean when I say that? Well, let's say Harm reduction, in a, big, in a bigger sense, is usually what people refer to as uh, needle exchange programs and things that are geared toward not necessarily curing the patient of the problem that they're dealing with, but making it so that at least if they're going to continue to have to um, be caught in this problem, that we're going to at least make some efforts and some success toward decreasing the fatality of the uh, use of the uh, substances, decreasing uh, transmission of HIV and hepatitis as a result of the fact that they're going to continue to use these, these drugs, that's harm reduction. And that is exactly what 
meeting them where they are at is all about. If somebody is truly engrossed in continuing on with IV substance use, opioid use, and they're not even thinking about stopping at this point, well, let's do what we can to at least engage in engage with them. If we can just engage with them so that when they do reach that point, and chances are they will reach that point where they will realize, I've got to do something to get out of this, at least they know that there's an avenue that we are offering an avenue to allow for them to get that kind of, that kind of help and that kind of treatment. So if we can engage with them with these needle exchange programs, not only are we keeping them from getting HIV, keeping them from getting hepatitis C uh, because they're no longer sharing needles, but also they already know us and they already have come to trust us in a way that they can then ask us, hey, I'm, I'm done with this. I need out of it. Can you please help me? Can you tell me what I can do to, to get into uh, a program? Can you maybe give me some buprenorphine until I can get into that program? Um, for me, buprenorphine is, in a sense, it's equivalent in some ways to that needle exchange. Um, it basically is giving them some protection away from the overdose by shielding their receptors from the other more harmful opiates that they might take that might result in overdose and death. Um, it also, if it's successful, it's going to keep them away from using those needles. This is a way for me to keep the harm down, although in some ways for some patients it might not get to the point where they just stop using completely. At least they're going to use in reduced amounts than what they were before, and in doing so, I'm still reducing the, the chances that we're going to see the spread of HIV, the spread of hepatitis C. Um, and eventually they, hopefully, and, and it is the trend that we see, eventually most folks will be able to kind of gradually get to the point where they can break free of this, uh, this problem. When you have a patient that you believe or that you know has an opioid use disorder, what makes them or when are they a candidate for starting buprenorphine in the ED? Well, we, no, let me put it this way. We don't really, in the ED, we don't offer this to people that are younger than 18. Um, I'm not saying even that, that's, that, that somebody less than 18 shouldn't be offered this in a different setting, but I don't know that we have the wherewithal to really figure out if, if this is the right thing to do for somebody who's, you know, in a potentially a pediatric type uh, situation. Um, but the vast majority of other folks who are dealing with this problem, at least should, it should be a discussion. It should be a discussion about what the medication does. It should be a discussion about whether they uh, have some type of uh, problem where somebody in their family um, doesn't perhaps like the fact that they would be, quote, trading one addiction for another addiction, it's that type of thing, that type of, again, judgment that is put down on them by people who are in their lives um, that makes them steer clear of using buprenorphine instead of abstinence. Um, that type of trading one, di one addiction to another addiction uh, thought process needs to be discussed further because the people who are in their lives and the patient himself or herself needs to get a better grasp about what we're trying to do. We're not trying to trade addictions. We're trying to take a tool, which is this medication, 
that will be able to completely alleviate, or nearly completely for most individuals, alleviate the cravings that are so horrible, so horrible with these folks, and make them go away so that they can then finally sit down and, and speak with somebody who's a therapist and speak with some folks that, and perhaps family members that they've more or less uh, cut themselves off from because of their behaviors that have been brought on and made so horrible from the fact that they've been using these, these, um, these drugs, uh, these substances that are uh, street drugs. Um, when we have that discussion and talk about it as a tool and have that discussion about it not being an addiction to buprenorphine or, or even methadone for that matter, you, un- you get them to understand that this is something that makes sense, and it's equivalent essentially to insulin for the diabetic. That type of thing changes the way they view it. So at least it's worth a discussion with the vast majority of people who are dealing with opiate use disorder. How would you start it? What's been your experience in, in trying to start someone on buprenorphine in the ED, and then how do you continue that? You can start right up. I mean, um, once you do one or two of these, you realize, boy, this is, this is silly that I would get um, flustered by the fact that I want to try and use this medication. It's very effective. And you see right in front of you, I've seen, a, I took a couple of, a, um, a couple of med students in the other day, and we went and saw one of our patients who was in pretty significant withdrawal. And um, we stepped out after, and uh, we got the medication ordered, and then went it back in maybe 30 minutes, 45 minutes after, and the two medical students were just floored by the fact that the patient was completely calm, sitting down, and just answering questions like um, just saying that he was completely better. And, and once you see that and how easy the process is, it makes all the, all the sense in the world to try and help out and uh, to get this thing uh, better managed in our setting so that we can bridge into the outpatient care setting. Grant, as, as emergency physicians, we hear all the time about throughput, why throughput is so important. You know, hospitals are paid extra money because we meet certain throughput metrics. And, and as a result of that, I've heard many physicians state their concern that, man, if we start into a buprenorphine protocol and, and, and give them this in the, in the ER, then that's going to create problems with throughput and add extra time to their stay. Have, has that been your experience or what are those metric changes that you've seen over your years of using buprenorphines initiating that in the ED? So the, there are studies, there's a, a study in particular that has looked at this and it does show that in fact, when you get this type of program started up, it does increase your, your flow initially. Um, and then after several months pass, it actually starts to decrease the flow of, of increased patient load because people are no longer coming to us to get opiates. Uh, they're no longer coming to us because they've uh, just overdosed. Uh, they're now in treatment, and actually you're seeing the effect on the community where um, – you know, this is this is what we want with medica- uh, with medicine. We want to have people in treatment, and they're in treatment, and they're no longer needing to come to us. And and that's truly what happens here. 
since COVID um, has come upon us in 2020, there, there have been some changes that have been made that may uh, benefit actually uh, managing uh, these patients, uh, and especially with the use of telemedicine. How, how has that affected the treatment of these patients and the Suboxone use? Yeah, so there's been a lot of changes that, um, and, and I would say that the biggest change is telemedicine. Um, I think with a lot of medicine, this has happened where COVID, as much of a problem as it is for us in many ways, it actually has allowed us to kind of step back a little bit and think about some of the regulations that we've set up um, and, and determine whether those regulations are actually helpful or harmful. Um, in this situation, COVID and um, social uh, separation that people are told to, uh, to follow, um, that is the exact opposite. Social isolation is the exact opposite of what we would want for somebody who's dealing with addiction. Um, they, they, the, 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 the saying goes that uh, what's, the op what's the opposite of addiction and the opposite of addiction is um, is um, attachment to others, and and that's really the truth because it's that attachment to others that helps people pull themselves out of addiction. Uh, isolation is is the worst thing for somebody who's got an addiction problem. So, in this situation, COVID comes along. So basically, you're throwing the entire addicted population into this increased risk of worsening of their situation. So people dealing with addiction knew, oh my gosh, we've got to do something because we're not going to be able to connect to these people the way that we usually do in groups because we're going to have this problem with COVID. And there were all these restrictions on the use of telemedicine. Um, they, they involved, um, well, for instance, so you can't really have a billable uh, telemedicine encounter with somebody unless that person or you are in what they call an origination site. Um, and in that, it's different from one county to the next. Uh, rural counties maybe have a little bit more of a, a license to, to, do, to do this, but most places you have to have either the patient or the physician in this origination site. And I'm not going to go through what exactly the origination site is, but you have to more or less be certified in order to be an origination site. And what is that doing for this? It's not helping this at all. It's just making it more difficult. So now, now it's such that I can actually get done with my emergency room shift, and if I have the wherewithal to, to step out after I've done my shift and go to my computer and sit down and have an encounter with a group of 12 people by telemedicine and do my medication management, that way, I can actually impact those 12 people, and yet what has it really done to me time-wise? Not very much at all. I just have a 30-minute session with these group of 12 people, and I've, I've really helped them, and yet it's not really a big deal where I have to pack up everything and then go to a, a center and then sit down with that group of people for 12, you know, for 30 minutes to an hour, and it's, it's much easier on the provider, and that's what I think really needed to happen is not only to get through the stigma of providing treatment to these folks, but to make it easier on, these fo on the folks who want to provide treatment. Um, the problem with using these medicines 
from the standpoint of a provider is that we're all scared because we've heard all these stories about somebody got put in jail because they were prescribing Suboxone. Um, you know, it, it, there, there, there's so many things that are barriers to us stepping in and actually doing this work. And telemedicine takes a lot of that away. It really makes it so it's a simple and easy encounter with that patient. And believe it or not, they're finding with studies that this kind of interaction through telemedicine is, it, is as impactful to patients as actually a face-to-face. You know, kind of wrapping up, is there anything else that you would like to share with our clinicians regarding this particular issue or your experience with MAT? Let me say, I, I think that probably this is the case with other areas as well, but my area, because of COVID, um, my hours are actually decreased in the ER, and, and that's a result of COVID and the volumes going down and, and this type of thing. So this, if people are willing to kind of consider this as an option, um, as a part-time thing, if they, if they can, um, you know, if they have an interest in it, it's not hard to get into it now. Um, they can do it as a side gig of what they normally are doing in the emergency room. And it not only involves stepping into an outside clinic and doing some of that work that, I'm talked about, that I've talked about already, but you can also do some of this work as a consult service for the hospital so that we've got somebody who's admitted to the hospital uh, for endocarditis for, you know, six weeks or whatever it is, uh, the long duration of time that they're in the, in the hospital. What a great time to have somebody go and approach them and say, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about medication-assisted treatment as a way to maybe help with this addiction issue? Um, the drug issues that communities deal with, they hit everything. Um, we have the worst foster parenting program in the country. It's not the program that's bad. It's the, the load of patients, uh, the load of kids that no longer have parents who are suitable for bringing these kids up because of drugs, or perhaps they're their parents have, have passed away in an overdose. I mean, that's a huge load on the community. We have problems where, uh, in our community, we have a number of um, uh, companies that have warehouses and such. Um, they can't hire people. They can't hire local people because they can't get anybody to pass a, a drug test. And so what they have to do is they have to bring in people, uh, employees from other states. You know, they bust them in, more or less, have them work their shift, and then all that money, that paycheck that they would normally be coming back into our community is being bussed out to other states. Um, you know, again, that's a direct effect on, on our community. Of course, there's the health effects um, of these, uh, these problems with addiction. So if, if not even looking at another job or a side gig or something like that, if you just want to do something good for your community, this is the best way I can see for a physician to do something for the community is to step in and try and attack this problem in ways that are proven to be very effective. You know, most medications that we write for people, they have a number needed to treat of, you know, it's probably 10 or so for a lot of these meds that we write. Um, the number needed to treat for, um, for buprenorphine is two. So for every person that I give this prescription to, you know, well, it lets every two people I give this prescription to 
one of those two people is going to actually get the benefit I'm looking for out of it. And that's insane. That, that is crazy that this medication is that good and it doesn't get touted as being that good. So if we have these tools and if we can affect the community in the way that I'm talking about, we can really rejuvenate things in a huge way. And that's all, that's all on us to step into that. I'd like to wrap us up by making a couple of statements. Um, the Substance Use Work Group, of which you are a member, Brant, and I really appreciate your work on the committee and your expertise. We totally agree with you. We believe that you know patients with opioid use disorder deserve uh, access to and will benefit from buprenorphine treatment along with concomitant cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, we appreciate the things that you're doing in West Virginia. So hopefully we'll even by listening to this podcast, we will become a little less stigmatized regarding buprenorphine and do a better job of helping manage this group of patients. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast with Dr. Randall Dabbs and Brant Williamson. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for others, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.